Good morning, Christ Community Church, and happy Easter Sunday. Last week, we made the case that if you just see Jesus as your sure bet, He can't challenge you. Likewise, we made the case that if you just see Jesus as a threat, He can't comfort you. In order to see the right perspective of Jesus, we need to see Him as both a sure bet that will comfort and save us, at the same time a threat that can challenge and change us. When we have that perspective of Jesus, we are now understanding what it is to worship Him. Because then we won't just see Jesus as the means to our desires or see Jesus as the obstacle against our desires. Jesus actually becomes our desire. And at the heart of it, that's the essence of worship. Well, this, mor- this Easter morning, we're going to be looking at something as equally important, and that's making sure we have the right understanding, the right perspective of the resurrection. After all, what good is it to have the right perspective of who Jesus is if A, He didn't actually rise from the grave, or B, we have no way to grasp the significance of that event for our lives? Now, you may have picked up from Scott's reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Paul addresses both of those issues. Paul says in verse 1, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, And at the heart of the gospel message we see in verses 3 through 10 is the resurrection. And at the heart of the resurrection, verses 13 to 20 show us, is its significance for us. But did you notice what Paul does? He gives us both an intellectual, historical understanding of the resurrection and an experiential, practical understanding of what that means for us. And it's really important to see how Paul does both of those things. Because a Christianity that's, that's just intellectual, that's not going to transform you. Uh, if Christianity is just a collection of amazing facts from history, that's not going to get into your heart. That's not going to arrest your soul and change you. It'll be just like any other amazing fact from history. Acknowledging the truth of Christianity alone is not enough. It might be true, but that won't lead to worship. On the other hand, a Christianity that's just experiential, uh, it doesn't matter if that transforms you, because if it's not rooted in history, if it's not rooted in the historical person of Christ, what are you being transformed into? Feeling good about your Christian faith alone is not enough either. It might be worship, but it won't be true. Now, if you're going to have the correct perspective uh, uh, to worship. If you're going to understand true worship, you need both an intellectual and an experiential grasp of the resurrection. So, let's look at the perspective of Easter. Let's look at the perspective of the resurrection as Paul tells us about it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 by asking two important questions. Number one, why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ so significant? Friends, that, that, that right there is the million-dollar question, isn't it? Why is this significant for our lives? What does it mean for me, for you, for, for humanity? But before we can really embrace and appreciate the significance of that question, we have to ask and answer a more foundational question. How can we have the confidence that the resurrection is actually true? How can we be sure that this actually took place in history? 
That's the order that Paul presents it, and that's the way we're going to look at it as well. So let's ask the first question. How can we be confident that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened? Now, the first thing we just need to realize is that this is an honest question that we actually have to, gra- to grapple with. I mean, since never before or ever since has something like this ever happened in the history of humanity. But we also have to realize that that's not a new question. It's not as if just since the Enlightenment or the rationalism of modernity and everything changed, people have been asking that question. No, the resurrection was doubted from the first. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. He writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, the reason Paul can ask this really strong rhetorical question of the Corinthians was because the answer was really clear. The answer was really clear because he just provided them three lines of evidences right there in verses 3 through 10. The empty tomb, the eyewitnesses' accounts, and the changed lives. Friends, each one of these alone is a compelling argument. All three of them combined, it's irrefutable. Let's think about the empty tomb for a second. Nearly everyone during that time had a huge incentive to find the corpse of Jesus of Nazareth. Certainly the religious leaders did, because what they saw happening was this resurgence of this movement they called the way, the Christians, that the Messiah had risen from the grave. They had every reason to pull the corpse of Jesus out, drag it through the streets, and say, your faith is vain. Here is the body. The Roman authorities, the Roman government had huge incentive to find the corpse of Jesus as well, because they needed to quell a messianic uprising that was starting to stir. As a matter of fact, just about every citizen in Jerusalem would have been incentivized either by the Roman authorities or the religious leaders to find the body, the corpse of Jesus of Christ, but His body was never found. The tomb remained empty by every and all historical accounts. Secondly, we notice here, Paul mentions several people who saw Jesus after His resurrection. He mentions Peter, then the 12 disciples, and then more than 500 people at a single time. Friends, I want you to keep something in mind here. Uh, The book of 1 Corinthians, the letter was written probably 18 to 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there was every possibility that the people reading this letter could have easily asked, found one of these individuals who would still be alive to verify whether or not they actually saw with their own eyes the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Finally, the other clear line of evidence that Paul offers are the changed lives. And notice he talks about his own life being changed. He was the chief persecutor of the church, and now he's become the chief promoter of the church. Listen to what British scholar N.T. Wright says about this. If there were only an empty tomb and no eyewitness accounts of Jesus, then the conclusion would be that the body of Jesus was stolen. If, however, there were only eyewitness accounts and there still was a body in the tomb, then the conclusion would be some kind of mass hallucinations. Christianity could have only changed lives like it did because it had both an empty tomb 
and eyewitness accounts. Friends, let's pause for a second and think about why these his, this kind of historical evidence is so important. I know at Easter time, it's very tempting to say, it's Easter, can't we just talk about good things that, are, that make us feel good and spiritually uplifting and the springtime and all those kinds of realities? And why are we talking about historical evidence and apologetics? Well, here's why. Because I think it's really fashionable, in, in, certainly in our culture in South Orange County, for people to say things like, I'm so glad you found a religion that's so fulfilling for you. Or, I'm so glad that Christianity seems to work for you. Or, I'm glad that you have a spirituality that you enjoy. Now, the problem with these kinds of comments, as, as polite as they are, is that these comments, these comments miss the reality of true belief in their entirety. It's not about our personal desires or what we want or our own fulfillment. It's a matter of historical fact. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical event that has to be reckoned with. By the way, Paul himself didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he wanted to. In fact, he wanted the exact opposite. Look at what he says in Acts chapter 26 and verse 9. This is what Paul says as he's presenting the gospel message to King Agrippa. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul didn't believe the resurrection because he wanted to. He wanted nothing but the exact opposite. He wanted to stop the belief of Jesus and the spread of this idea that he rose from the grave. As a matter of fact, if you uh, read Paul's account in Acts chapter 26, Paul says he had to believe in the resurrection. He had to believe in it because it was true. As he's presenting the case to King Agrippa, uh, the, the, he's there on trial, and they want to hear why he's being presented on trial. Paul gives a story about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and when he gets to that point, Festus says to him, stop, Paul, you're out of your mind. He says, much learning has made you mad, Paul. And Paul comes back and says, Agrippa, Festus, I am not out of my mind. I can only speak what is true and rational words. And then what he says in verse 26, he says, By, you, you, this, just go ask King Agrippa. It's not like he doesn't know these facts. These things did not happen in a corner. The implication was the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that they could never find his body, these radically, radical eyewitness accounts was known everywhere. And Paul had to believe. Let me say this. If the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then no argument for Christianity is sufficient. But if the resurrection of Jesus did happen, then no argument for Christianity is necessary. Boom! the resurrection. It's, it's the 900-pound gorilla. If it didn't happen, then no matter what we say, we can't justify Christianity. If it did happen, we don't have to say anything. That's the evidence we need right there. But what does this mean for us today? That's the next question we have to consider. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ so significant? And just as Paul provides us with three clear lines of evidence of how we can be confident that the resurrection actually happened, 
Paul gives us three reasons now why the resurrection is so significant. It starts there in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no basis of the Christian faith. Without the Christian faith, we have no basis for ultimate meaning. Without ultimate meaning, life is nothing but despair and hopelessness. Those are big claims, so let's look at them one at a time. Number one, without the resurrection, we have no basis of a Christian faith. In verse 14, he says, if Christ hadn't come back from the grave, my preaching is vain, and, and you know what? Your faith is in vain. Obviously, if you're a Christian, I mean, that's, a, that's just a huge blow. That, that's a massive spiritual loss. And Paul is right to say in verse 19, if none of this happened, then we, if we have hope for, of Christ only in this life, then we of all men and women ought to be pitied. And he's right. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then, then how can we believe anything He said? This has all been a waste. Our lives are a waste. Now, that's how a Christian would view that. A non-Christian, they might just say, well, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that so many Christians are deluded, but it's not that big a deal. So, so Jesus did not rise from the grave. There is no resurrection. It's not that big a deal. So that there is no basis for the Christian faith, no problem. But the problem, if there's no basis of the Christian faith, then, then, then why? What would have happened if Christians stopped or didn't act Christianly throughout history? Think of the huge societal loss. It's not just a spiritual loss that the gospel is not true. There's a societal loss that Christians would not act like Christ throughout history. Just think if Christians did not promote the value of the sanctity of human life throughout all of history. Then the gladiatorial games that the Christians ended in 404 AD would have continued on at the loss of countless of thousands of people's lives. Christians being Christianly valuing the sanctity of life put an end to the Greco-Roman practice of infanticide. As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons the early Christian church grew so fast, because society was casting out all of these unwanted children, and they became members of the church and were raised by the church. More recently, how the confessing church in Germany stood against the Nazis and the Third Reich. Christians have stood for the value of human life like no other religious system ever has on this planet. Think about also, though, if Christians stopped acting Christianly because there was no basis for the faith, the, the, the situation, the predicament of the dignity of women throughout history, beginning with Jesus' interactions with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, moving through the radically countercultural teachings of Ephesians 5 and Colossians about husbands loving their wives and, and Christians putting away the Roman practice of patria potestas, the, the ultimate authority of the Father, even over the lives and death of family members. Christians ending the Hindu practice of suti, demanding that widows throw themselves on the funeral pyres of their husbands, or the Chinese practice of foot-binding. If Christians stopped acting Christianly because there was no basis of their faith, think of how the value of just human flourishing would have ended. Friends, you realize wherever the Christian faith has planted, three institutions have always followed historically. The academy, hospitals, and orphanages. 
Wherever the Christian church has planted, those three institutions flourish because they were an outgrowth of the Christian worldview of, of God-loving culture and wanting to redeem this humanity, including the mind and the culture, and, and an overflow of compassion and mercy. I mean, Jesus, think about South Orange County or Orange County. You can't drive five miles without passing by a hospital named after some saint, right? You got St. Joseph down here, uh, St. Jude up there, or back in La Habra where I'm from, a, a church started by the Presbyterians, a, a Presbyterians intercommunity inter, inter faith hospital. While I was in college, I worked at an orphanage. Well, I worked at a, a home for boys that was started in 1900 by a pastor because he had seen all, the plight of so many young children without families. To say nothing of the, the, the Salvation Army or the Red Cross, all of these movements were driven by the impulse that life matters, flourishing matters, and that's fueled by the hope of the resurrection that teaches that life overcomes death, darkness is overcome by the light, and the beauty of the dawn always follow the despair of night, all because of the hope in the resurrection. I mean, by comparison… How many schools and hospitals and orphanages do you know that were founded by people who actively opposed the Christian faith and the Christian teaching? If the resurrection were not true, there would be no basis for the Christian faith. What a huge spiritual and societal loss. And secondly, without a basis of Christian faith, you have no basis for the ultimate meaning in life. And friends, this is, this is not a hard conclusion to arrive at. You just have to think about it. If everything ends with this life, then why does anything we do in this life have any meaning at all? Now, some of you may not agree with his philosophy, but you have to certainly applaud uh, Bertrand Russell's consistency in his atheism when he said this, all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. I am so glad we have verse 20 here. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, let me be real clear here. Let me be real clear here. What, what Paul is not, what, 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 Christianity, what Christianity is not saying, Christianity is not saying that life has meaning because of immortality and life loses meaning because of our mortality, right? So, so what we're not saying is that the reason life now has meaning is because of immortality and the reason it doesn't have meaning is because we're mortals. That, that's not what we're saying. We're saying something completely different because who wants to keep living forever in this state? right? That, that's not our hope. Living forever is not our hope. Let's be really clear on that. It's not my hope. Who wants to live in a world forever full of agony, sorrow, brokenness, injustice, weakness? Who wants to live in a world like that forever? That, that's like a different version of hell. That is not what Christianity teaches. Rather, what Christianity teaches, what Paul is getting at here is that meaning is derived from resurrection life itself. It is not just a, a, a quantity, it is a quality 
of life that is very distinct. So when Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, that I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, he's just not talking you get overtime. He's talking about a, a quality of life as well as the quantity. And so Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, that in Adam all of us have died but in Christ, we've been made alive with that resurrection life. At the end of this chapter, in verse 55 to 57, Paul says it's just like this triumphant climax. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's gone. Because in the death of Christ, or as John Owen says, death died in the death of Christ. And friends, a fatal blow has been delivered. Look at verse 24. A fatal blow has been delivered against every power, every rule, every authority which has reared itself against the rule of God and His kingdom. At the cross, Christ triumphed over all of His enemies, and in that triumph lie human freedom and meaning. So without the resurrection, there's no basis of the Christian faith. And without the resurrection, without the Christian understanding of life, there is no basis for ultimate meaning. And third and lastly, without ultimate meaning, life is nothing but despair and hopelessness. Notice in our text, verse 32, Paul quotes from Isaiah 22:13. He says the second half of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Well, why is Paul quoting from Isaiah 22? Isaiah 22 was a period when, when the people of God should have been mourning and turning to Him in repentance from their sin. Instead, they were turning to their temporary pleasures to ease their pain. Friends, the reality is, like we have in Isaiah 22, we see in our culture, if, if the hope of God is forgotten, or if God is ignored, or the hope that He offers in His life is abandoned and denied, then really there's only two options left to us. There's either nihilism, that's what we read from Bertrand Russell, nothing matters. Why do anything? Well, if everything's just going to die and no one will remember us, nothing matters. It just, it's despairing, it's empty, it's nihilism. The other option, if you don't go the nihilistic way, is hedonism. Eat, drink, party, and die because nothing else matters. So live for the moment, live for the now, consume as much, you can, as much as you can, enjoy as much as you can, make the most of the moment because nothing is after our lives. And don't we see the tragic tra trajectory of one of those two choices all throughout history in our own lives? Maybe the lives of your friends, you see it. They may not use those words, but they ever give up, they give up because they have no hope. Or they try to distract themselves or drown themselves in pleasures of this world. They're so temporary, so they don't have to think about the gnawing void that life is meaningless because they've abandoned or ignored God. Friends, resurrection means endless hope. No resurrection means a hopeless end. There's no two ways about it. At the very end of 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why could Paul write that? Why could he say, therefore? The reason he's saying therefore, he's, he's, he's culminating the whole argument he made in this amazing chapter. If the res- he says, therefore, the resurrection is true. Death and emptiness is dead. It's gone. So therefore, we can be steadfast. We can be immovable in this life. We can be always abounding because we know nothing we do is in vain. Nothing's empty. Nothing's meaningless. Even the most insignificant act, like giving someone a cold cup of water, Jesus says, will not be forgotten. The resurrection makes the most insignificant thing in this world significant. But without the resurrection, the most significant things of this world are completely insignificant. Friends, the significance of the resurrection is that we who believe in Christ and His rising from the grave have a concrete, absolute hope. And without hope in the future, there's very little meaning you can have in the present. The resurrection is a sure hope, a hope located in the undeniable historical events of Jesus and that empty tomb, a hope that does not end at the horizon of this life, a hope that does not disappoint because that hope is inevitably and directly connected and tied to the person and work of Jesus Christ who lives. That's what Easter is. He is risen. And all of God's people say, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son is risen, that the tomb is empty. This is not something that we believe in because we find it fulfilling or we want it or we like it. Those that may be true, we believe in it because it happened. And to do anything else would not be wise or rational. Father, we embrace the significance, Lord, that this, the reality of the resurrection teaches us that nothing that we do in this life would be insignificant, that everything we do matters because of the resurrection life we have in Christ. Father, I pray that if there's anybody listening or watching, that they would realize that their whole sense of meaning and, and, and importance and significance is tied to these questions. Did the resurrection happen? And what is its significance for me? Father, we pray that everyone can answer that it did happen, and it is significant because it has changed my destiny forever, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.